Good morning. Have you ever wondered why we worship God? Why do we praise God? Or you might put it this way, why does God need so much praise? This is such a foundational question, but apparently people are afraid to ask a pastor about it. Instead, people turn to the internet search engine called Google for answers. Googling for God, some have named it. Do you want to know the four questions about God that people ask Google most often? Yeah? Get the slides up here. Here we go. Number one question Americans Google about God is this. Who created God? Number two, why does God allow suffering? Number three, and this one is particularly unnerving, why does God hate me? And number four, most frequently asked question to Google about God. Why does God need so much praise? So this is the question we'll address today. Why does God need so much praise? In the course of addressing it, we'll deal with that painful third question people ask as well. But we won't be Googling God for the answers, though. Sorry to disappoint some of you. Instead, we'll be going to the middle of the Bible to a book called the Psalms. Now, the book of Psalms just might be the most popular book in the Bible. As you may recall, the Psalms are quoted in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament book. Martin Luther, the German reformer of the church, the guy who wrote the song, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, during the Reformation, he claims that the Psalms might well be called a little Bible. In it is comprehended most beautifully and briefly everything that is in the entire Bible. In other words, the Psalms give us a summarized picture of God. Not only do the Psalms show us who God really is, they also show us who we really are. That's why the other reformer, John Calvin, calls the Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. If we want to learn about the human body, where do we go? We, we might open a textbook, right, on, on human anatomy. Some of you have taken courses in human anatomy. There we see physical images of bones and muscles, nerves and organs. We learn about how the body really is and how it functions and how it stays healthy. But if we want to learn about the soul, we have to go to a different sort of book. To learn how the soul really is, how it functions and how it stays healthy, we must turn to the Psalms. The soul is that invisible inner reality that God has placed in every one of us. So that's why Calvin calls this book an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Now, on a personal note, I have found Calvin's words to be tried and true. Ten years ago, I was introduced to the practice of praying the Psalms. You know this practice? This is the practice of using the words of the Psalms as your own words. It's a simple practice. You can do it later today if you'd like. I'd encourage it. You simply go through a psalm and allow the words to prompt you. Allow the words to guide your own conversation with God. If you were here last week, the prayers of the people, that's what we were doing with Psalm 23. Now, every now and then uh, in my own uh, devotional life, I try a different way of praying, but I just keep coming back to the psalms because they have taught me how to pray. 
and how to cry, how to desire more of God, and how to be completely honest with God, the last thing that I desire. Significant for our purposes today, the Psalms have also provided a response to the question, why does God need so much praise? So we turn to the Psalms over the next three weeks, and what we might call a mini-series on the Psalms. We begin today in Psalm 145, as was said earlier, and Reverend Anastasia Bonziak, a colleague of ours, will continue the series for the next two weeks as our guest preacher. So that's your introduction to the Psalms for this three-week series. Now here's a, a brief introduction to Psalm 145. Psalm 145 is a poem of praise. The structure of this poem is really fascinating. It's an alphabet poem. You remember these alphabet poems from elementary school? Here's one I wrote. Apples are red, bananas are yellow. Cherries are sweet, donuts are better. Eggs are runny, fries are hot. Grapes are yummy, horseradish is not. That's an alphabet poem. And believe it or not, that's precisely the type of poem we have in Psalm 145. The first line begins with a Hebrew word, the first Hebrew word in the Hebrew alphabet, first Hebrew letter. The second line begins with the second letter, and so it continues all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. So what's the point? Is the psalmist just trying to be cute? I don't think so. I think the psalmist is trying to make a profound point, even in the way he structures his poem. The point is this. When we see the power and goodness of God, we naturally find ourselves praising God from A to Z. That's the intention of the psalmist, who marshals the entire alphabet in praise of God. Now, while he works with the alphabet, the psalm also has a second structure. We can think of this structure as three, as three movements of thought. Here's a slide. It's help, helpful to, to visualize it more than it is to explain it. The poem begins with a commitment to worship. This statement of intent is followed up by reasons for worship. And then these reasons revolve around God's power. Those reasons come first. And then reasons that orbit around God's goodness. And this cycle, as you can see, repeats itself once, and the psalm ends with one final commitment to worship. So that's the structure. And we'll have three readers this morning, and I invite our readers up at this point. I see one of them. There she is. <laughs> Each of these readers will represent one of these movements, and so I hope we can catch the, the logic of the psalmist, the inspired, the God-inspired logic. So friends, hear God's word to us, which is also our word to God. I will lift you up on high, my God, the true king. I will bless your name forever and always. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and always. The Lord is great and so worthy of praise. God's greatness can't be grasped. One generation will praise your works to the next one, proclaiming your mighty acts. They will talk all about the glorious splendor of your majesty. I will contemplate your wondrous works. They will speak of the power of your awesome deeds. 
I will declare your great accomplishments. They will rave in celebration of your abundant goodness. They will shout joyfully about your righteousness. The Lord is merciful and compassionate, very patient and full of faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone and everything. God's compassion extends to all his handiwork. All that you have made gives thanks to you, Lord. All your faithful ones bless you. They speak of the glory of your kingdom. They talk all about your power to inform all human beings about God's power and the majestic glory of God's kingdom. Your kingdom is a kingship that lasts forever. Your rule endures for all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all that he says, faithful in all that he does. The Lord supports all who fall down, straightens up all who are bent low. All eyes look to you, hoping, and you give them their food on right time, opening your hand and satisfying the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, faithful in all his deeds. The Lord is close to everyone who calls out to him, to all who call out to him sincerely. God shows favor to those who honor him, listening to their cries for help and saving them. The Lord protects all who love him but he destroys every wicked person. My mouth will proclaim the Lord's praise, and every living thing will bless God's holy name forever and always. This is the word of the Lord. Let's allow the three movements of the psalm to structure the rest of our time together. First, we deal with the poet's commitment to worship as Mary verbalized. Verse 1 starts it out. I will lift you up high, my God, the true King. I will bless your name forever and always. In the introduction, we pose the question, why does God need so much praise? This was the third most frequently asked question about God to the giant search engine named Google. Now, if we ask this question to the poet of this psalm, I think he'd be rather confused. That's because the sort of God the poet addresses does not need anything, per se. His God is Yahweh, the true king, who holds the universe in his hands. Therefore, God does not need human praise. There was a time in Israel's history when the Israelites thought God needed their worship, This worship took the form of animal sacrifices back then. God had prescribed animal sacrifices as a way of worshiping God, so they made the connection that God somehow needed them. Psalm 50 records God's response to this idea that God needs something from them. God says, I won't accept bulls from your house or goats from your corrals because every forest animal already belongs to me, as do the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every mountain bird, even the insects of the field are mine. Even if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you because the whole world and everything in it already belong to me. Do I eat bull's meat? Do I drink goat's blood? Offer God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. So it is the case with Psalm 145 and every other psalm that praise is offered to God not because God needs it, but because we need it. Praise is offered not 
because God needs it, but because we need it. Let me explain. God has made us to worship. We are worshiping beings. To worship is simply to ascribe worth to something. The things that we ascribe the most worth to, that's what we worship. Everyone does this. I've never met anyone, have you, who places equal value on all things? God has made us to worship, to value some things higher than ever, higher than others. And whatever we value as the highest, by definition, that's what we worship. Another aspect of being created to worship is this. We naturally become attached to whatever we say has the most worth. I'm not talking about what we say with our mouths, but what we say with our daily lives. Whatever we say has the most worth, by the actions of our lives, we become attached to these things. This is not a judgment, but an observation of what actually happens in people's lives. And it's a good thing that we're made like this, because God wants us to become attached to the highest thing, which is God. To put it differently, God wants us to experience an intimate relationship with God daily communion with God, living participation in God, real oneness with God. This was our beginning and this will be our ending. This was God's intention in making us worshiping beings. This also is the essence of why God became man in Jesus Christ, to bring us back into communion with God. We desperately need this work of Jesus For we have attached ourselves to all the wrong things in a million different ways. Christ came and taught and died and was raised to reorder our desires. To reunite us with the highest being who is God. Friends, listen to this. The divine attaches himself to humanity so that we might attach ourselves to the divine, communion, intimacy. And when this happens, we worship God. I suppose most of you know exactly what I'm talking about from personal experience. When this happens, when you experience a reconnection with your Lord, you worship God. It's not that God lacks anything, but from the overflow of divine love, we were created to experience God. And when we experience God, we naturally find ourselves praising God from A to Z. That's what happened for the psalmist, who bursts out into joyous praise. I will bless you every day. I will praise your name forever and always. Of course, God is happy with such praise because God delights in our embrace. God is pleased with such praise because God loves when we're fully alive to him. But God doesn't need our praise. The sacrifice of thanksgiving is what comes out of our mouths when we experience the oneness of God. Am I making sense? This is deep stuff we're dealing with. It's not just for the sake of being deep. It's because of the integrity of the question that so many Americans are asking Google. Why does God need so much praise? It's a deep question, and to do it justice requires a deep answer. 
I'm afraid we're still only skimming the surface of the mystery of worship, but that will have to suffice for now. Now we must move on to the second and third movement of our psalm. First, the psalm begins with a commitment to worship. Then the next two movements provide the reasons for worship. Now, as a matter of emphasis, the cycle repeats. And so first we'll deal with the, the reasons for worship that revolve around God's power. We're at the third line, if you, if you have your Bibles open, which means the line begins with the third letter in the Hebrew alphabet, which sounds like the English letter G. So verse 3 begins, Gadol Yahweh, great is the Lord. We say someone is great when we are astonished at the dimensions and magnitude of their achievements. LeBron James is great at basketball, right? Because what he can do on the court makes us marvel. We could say the same about Bach or Beethoven. What they do with music makes us marvel. But with the same logic, and to a much greater degree, we say, great is the Lord, because God's achievements are so immense that we cannot wrap our minds around them. That's why the second part of verse 3 declares, God's greatness cannot be grasped. What follows this is an accumulation of words with similar meanings. They're just piled up on top of each other, each other, one after another. Now, if we're not careful, this accumulation can sound just like empty words, meaningless words. They can all just run together, which makes them easy to ignore. But let me remind us that the psalmist is talking about God. What language do we have to speak of God? Left to ourselves, our words could not do God justice. Truth is, no language is big enough for the bigness of God, as verse 3 informs us. So that's why God puts words on our lips through the prayers and the psalms. God knows that we struggle to find the right words when we pray. So God gives us a language of prayer in the psalms. Here we see yet, yet another way that God makes the first move, that God steps towards us, that God draws near that God seeks us out. On account of this, when we experience God's greatness for ourselves, now we have some words to use to tell the next generation. Words like mighty acts and wondrous works. These are phrases we can use to tell the next generation what we've experienced in God. Words like the majestic glory of God's kingdom from verse 12. That's one way of describing to the next generation the manner in which Jesus Christ rules the earth. Christ's rule, Christ's reign, is unlike all the other ugly reigns of our world. Instead, Christ's reign is marked by a glorious splendor, a majesty befitting the true king. So taken as a whole, all of these phrases in this, in this section of the psalm they pile up on top of each other to highlight the power of God. And these words don't just highlight what God is like, God is powerful, but the poet takes it a step further to describe God's actions. So he speaks not just of God's might, but of what? Of God's mighty acts. 
not just of God's wonder, but of God's wondrous works. Not, a, not just of God's awesomeness, but God's awesome deeds, great accomplishments. This may not sound like much of a difference to you, but this is actually teaching us something basic about God. The God of the scriptures, the God of Israel, the God revealed in Jesus Christ, is no abstraction. God is no impersonal force of power. Instead, all of God's attributes get fleshed out in God's actions. That's how we know what God is like in the first place. We know through what we have experienced in God's actions. We know God because God has made himself known. So let me say it again. This is not a God someone thought up in a library somewhere. God is no thought experiment. God is no hypothesis. God is no philosophical exercise. God is no mere projection of human desires. No, this is the living God we're talking about. A God who acts, a God in motion, a God on mission, a triune God, a God of three persons and one being, who exists in perfect harmony without need for our praises. But God chooses to create. God didn't need to create, but God chooses to create. The intimacy within the Trinity was quite enough, thank you very much. But God chooses to be the God who is with us. So he creates from the overflow of his eternal being. And with a whisper of love, God says, light. And there is light. That's the God we worship. In this way... God breathed into being a universe. And in an act of the most supreme affection, God chooses to be with humanity. God chooses to be God with us, not God without us. For this reason, when we speak of God, we don't just say God is powerful, but we talk about God's powerful acts. For example, I had a speech impediment as many of you know. I could not say my R's to save my life, and nothing I tried helped for 20 years, and nothing helped. I begged God to take it away, and I begged, and I begged some more. I even cut a deal with God as a 12-year-old, as only 12-year-olds can cut deals. (laughs) God, if you heal me of my speech impediment, then I will become a pastor. True story. Then God, who made the tongue, scooped me up in his hand, and with, when my soul was ready, God slowly trained my tongue with gentle power to say my R's. And today I am a preacher. So I must tell you that God is not just powerful, but God acts powerfully in real human lives. This action will look different for you than it did for me. And I'll have you know I still have many prayers that have gone unanswered. But I know for certain that God acts in powerful ways in real human lives. And I know my story isn't the only example of this within Heartland Community Church. Pastor Stephanie and I have heard firsthand so many more. You too have a story, don't you? Truth is, many of you have a whole stockpile of stories in which God has interacted with your life. So if you have a story... I urge you to tell it to the next generation. They need to hear it. That's why 
That's the way we properly praise God from A to Z, from one generation to the next. We tell it to the next generation. Verse 4 states this as a matter of fact. One generation will will praise your works to the next one, proclaiming your mighty acts. So join the company of folks who have done just that and tell your story to the next generation. Well, how do I do that? I don't know how you do that. Ask God. He'll tell you. God will help you form your story. God will help you remember what you need to. God will help you tell it. It doesn't have to be some long, drawn-out, carefully crafted thing. Just tell your story. God will bring people into your life if you ask him. And if you pay attention, you will feel that nudging of the Holy Spirit to tell these people a little story of God's interaction with your life doesn't have to be profound or dramatic. It doesn't even need to be a success story. It just needs to be honest, and it needs to involve God. Those are the only two requirements. Do you have any stories from your life that are honest and that involve God? God will do the rest of the work when we tell stories like that. Now, while I don't know exactly how God wants each of you to tell your story exactly, I should at least give you a heads up on a project that's happening this summer at Heartland. Our church has recently received funds from our classes to do a video project this summer. Now, these funds have allowed us to purchase video equipment and to hire our own Peter Rop for the summer to be our official church videographer. Did you ever think Heartland would have an official church videographer? <laughs> now, a key part of this video project is recording people's stories, stories of how God has shown up in our lives, stories of God interacting with you on life's journey. Again, they don't have to be profound or dramatic, just honest and involving God. More details will follow in, the couple we- in a couple weeks, but you may just want to begin considering what stories has God given you to tell, and how might you uh, participate in telling these to the next generation? Maybe, maybe the video project is one way. Okay, now we move to our third movement. We have dealt with the commitment to praise God. We have dealt with the first set of reasons for worship, God's power. Now we move on to this final movement of thought, the reasons for worship which pertain to God's goodness. Are you ready for this? (laughs) Thanks, Larry. I can always count on you. (laughs) The movement begins with verse 7. They will rave in celebration of your abundant goodness, common English Bible says. They will shout joyfully about your righteousness. Here we begin to see how God uses power. We see that God's power is expressed through his goodness. That's what the poet is trying to get at by structuring the poem like he does. He places a section of God's power right before a section on God's goodness. And he does this twice to show that God's power is expressed through God's goodness. Or we could say, or we could say, God's power is good and God's goodness is powerful. Say that with me. God's power is good. That's why people 
bubble up with such extravagant talk of God, gushing it forth like a fountain. Because God is not just almighty, but God is also all good. Now I've got to ask you, is this the God you know? Or, or are you anything like the people from the introduction who ask Google the question, why does God hate me? How I wish everyone who asks Google this question would hear and believe the gospel of verse 8. John Calvin calls this verse as clear and satisfactory a description of the nature of God as can be found anywhere. Those are strong words. Verse 8. The Lord is merciful and compassionate, very patient and full of faithful love. The Lord is good to everyone and everything. God's compassion extends to all his handiwork. Is that the God you know? Now, if I know my Hebrew well enough, it appears that God is good, not just to Christians, (laughs) and not just to the human race. But the text says, the Lord is good, lekol, to all, and his mercies are alkol, over all, his creation. Driving this point home is the fact that the word for all and every show up 16 times in this psalm. What if the psalmist really means that God, at God's core, truly is good to all? God is good to Christians and Muslims, and Mormons, and atheists. God is good to people who find themselves unattractive, and people who are burdened by mental illness, and people who struggle with their sexuality. God is good to black people, and brown people, white people, and tan people. God is good to everyone and everything. God's compassion extends to all of these people. Do you believe that? How else could you read Psalm 145? What's more, we must also say that God is good to creeks and rivers, hawks and hummingbirds. God is good to grass and grasshoppers, tulips and tulip trees. God is good to the earth and the moon, even to you and to me. God is good from A to Z, and God's compassion extends to all his handiwork. Is that the God you know? What else could this psalm mean but this? When we come to understand this, and personally, when you come to know that God is good to you, I'm confident that you will not lack for reasons to praise your God from now until forever from now. Amen? But we can't stop quite yet. Otherwise, you might misunderstand what I'm saying. As we go down the psalm, we notice in verse 18 that the focus of God's activity gets narrowed. Do you see that? The psalm has already celebrated the universal goodness of God shown to all things in general. Now the psalm narrows its focus to talk about the goodness of God to individuals in particular, from God's goodness in general to God's goodness in particular. Now it's important that we don't allow this focus on the individual to negate what was said previously. I think sometimes we we let this happen. But it's equally important, especially for our own well-being, 
that we consider what's said about the individual. Does that make sense? So real quick, let me say it like this. While it certainly holds true that God is good to everyone, it is also true, as verse 18 says, that the Lord is close to everyone who calls out to him sincerely. So I urge you, call out to God sincerely. And while it still holds true that God's compassion extends to all God's creatures, it is also true, as verse 19 says, that God shows favor to those who honor him. And the Lord protects all who love him. So I urge you, honor God and love God. Finally, while it still holds true that what we said earlier about God's universal and undeserved goodness, while that still holds true, it's also true that God destroys every wicked person. So I urge you, seek God's face today. Don't put it off any longer, or you may just find yourself wasting away one day at a time. So how can this be? How can God's universal goodness relate to God's particular salvation? We don't have time, obviously, to explore this question today. But let me just say, as we close, that I think it has something to do with God's desire to not coerce love. God loves everyone unconditionally. And when God's love is not reciprocated, the lives of God's precious children are destroyed. That's the main reason I think God cares so deeply about sin and injustice, because it destroys his precious children. My sin, your sin, it does something to waste away who you were created to be. Therefore, God's goodness requires more than just overlooking sins. But let me also say this, and I'll end with this. If Jesus has taught me anything, it's that the Lord is merciful and compassionate, very patient, and full of faithful love. If Jesus has taught me anything, it's that God has come not to save good people, but to save sinners. If Jesus has taught me anything, it's that while we were a long way off, like a lost son in a faraway country, our God was found racing toward us with joy written all over his face. And if Jesus has taught me anything, the point of our lives is the embrace that follows. To the glory of God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. Amen.